Hello, and welcome to the Apostolic Church Liverpool podcast. We hope the message you're about to listen to will inspire you, will be a blessing to you, and give you perspective in life. For more of such messages, you can visit our website at www.tac-lona.org.uk. You can also access other messages and resources from our YouTube channel, The Apostolic Church Europe. We hope you're blessed and inspired by today's message. God bless you. Here's the message. Um, I've titled the first chapter, uh, Three Essentials for Success, and we're going to see how that plays out um, in the context of the text. But just by way of quick recap, uh, in a sense, both epistles, the first and the second, um, you could say that one of the central messages around both is the subject of faithfulness. Faithfulness, um, not only as it applies to Timothy as a young pastor, but faithfulness as it applies to Christians in, in, in the entirety. We, we saw again and again at different points, point us to the fact that both epistles were not just written to one person. It is, it, they were written to the whole church. And so um, the first Timothy, we broke it down along the lines of understanding the church. And now we are moving on to Second Timothy to see how to be a faithful part of that church. So that's just placing everything um, in context for us. If you recall, when we did First Timothy, uh, we grouped it into four sections. We looked at the church and its message. We looked at the church and its members. We looked at the church and the ministers in the church. And finally, we looked at the church and the ministries of the church. Um, and we've done all of that uh, over the last few months. And now we are moving on to this new outline for Second Timothy, which we began again, like I said, last week. Um, generally, I think uh, thematically, Paul is appealing to Timothy in this final letter that he wrote. We know that this was his last letter. He's appealing onto faithfulness but not only, again, not only to Timothy, but by extension to everyone that will get to be the secondary audience of that letter, even including you and I, uh, as we are here today. So last week, we began to look at the first seven verses, which Pastor Davis took us on. Um, and one theme that we could give that is courageous enthusiasm. But before I get there, um, one of the key things we said is the fact that these were the final words of Paul. So you could read it in a sense like the words of a dying man. You could read it the same way you would read, for instance, John, the last like six, seven chapters of John, um, immediately after the story of Lazarus being um, re made risen from the dead, from chapter 12 onwards, Jesus began all the series of teachings about the Holy Spirit, about things to expect at the end. In John 17, he prayed this priestly prayer. Those were his final words. You could call them the words um, of a dying man in a manner of speaking. But in Paul's case, not only was he dying, I mean, it was certain at this point that he was going to be executed shortly after he wrote this letter. Um, but secondly, he was a lonely man. Uh, especially by the time we get to chapter four, we would see this come out ever so clearly. He said categorically in verse 16 that all the Gentiles that he was ministering to, they've, dis they've deserted him. Demas left him, we read in verse 11. Many of his partners in ministry, for one reason or the other, have left him. And the few ones that were still faithful are far away from Rome. Um, doing the work of the ministry. So it wasn't only uh, looking at death, it was also lonely at this point in time. And yet with these two serious weighty realities, his attention was not on himself. His attention and concern was still for Timothy and the success of the gospel ministry that he was passing on as it were to him. And so um, all of that should be at the backdrop as we read through all the four chapters of this book. Again, we reiterated last week uh, some of the things we saw about Timothy. Study out. Don't come here. From First Timothy uh, <laughs> last week. Um, part of the things we saw about Timothy is the fact that he was timid. 
um, and perhaps he suffered from some physical ailments, hence the requirement for him to take a little wine. Uh, and then he was tempted to let other people take advantage of him. And such a scripture as 1 Timothy 4.12, let no man despise thy youth and things like that. Uh, but in 2 Timothy, Paul is going to be giving him, especially in this first chapter, three essential requirements for success. Three essential requirements for success. The first of those requirements is courageous enthusiasm. Um, and that's what we looked at last week. We might not exactly have used that phrase, but the point here is that both in ministry and in life, for you to be successful, you need, amongst other things, to be enthusiastic about it. You want to be successful. And that kind of enthusiasm will be fueled by certain things. One of them is love. And you see that we dwelled so much on this last week. Uh, we're even given examples of people that loved us in ways that their love is motivating us to become better, motivating us to give our best, motivating us to serve, to go the extra mile, because we know that someone truly and genuinely loves us. That's one of the secret sources, in a manner of speaking, of that kind of enthusiasm. Another part of that is prayers. Someone somewhere is praying for you. Um, I'm not uh, ignorant of the fact that part of the realities I'm living in today is not because I have been the best prayer, but because I'm also aware that I have people that are praying for me, especially parents that are praying for me. And I know the same is true for very many of us. The third aspect that fuels such enthusiasm is confidence. When someone believes in you, when someone um, knows you to the point where they, they have confidence in you, even when you know yourself that you are not the most perfect, you are not the best of the best. Uh, but then some people just look at you and without you being able to explain or justify their confidence in you, they just have confidence in you and that can keep you going a long way paul had confidence in timothy in that manner otherwise why would anyone want to put a teenager in charge of a church possibly a teenager in charge of a church that was very massive efficient church in a major city like that uh, and yet it was a young man that paul put there to be pastoring it that's because he believed in him and lastly we saw the fact that god has given a gift to timothy a gift that was bestowed on him by delaying of, of hands, Paul said, um, and a gift that is able to drive away fear. God has not given you the spirit of fear, but of power of love and of sound mind or self-control. That was where we ended um, last week. And so today we want to pick it up from there and talk about two other requirements, you could say, for success in life and in ministry. Um, everything we are sharing, of course, primarily has a spiritual significance, but indeed, this also transits into everyday life um, in that sense. In fact, the, the practical dimensions of our lives is an outflow, essentially, of our spiritual life. And so the two other things we are going to spend today looking at is shameless suffering, shameless suffering and spiritual loyalty. And I'm glad for the question that uh, we started out with, because that is practically the, the bulk of what we want to discuss for today. The understanding about the fact that for us to be successful in life and in ministry, we need to be prepared to suffer and to suffer shamelessly um, for the sake of the gospel. And yet in the midst of that, to maintain spiritual loyalty um, uh, to God's word and to God's servants. So we're going to start from the second part straight away uh, on shameless suffering. It's verses 8 to 12, but to put it in context, especially for those of us that might not be here last week or those that um, might just be jumping in into 2 Timothy, I'll read all the text all the way down to verse 12, and then we'll pick up from verses 8 to 12 for what we want to talk about. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, a beloved son, it starts in that language of love, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my first forefathers did, as without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. Paul was praying for him night and day. Verse 4, greatly desiring to see you, 
being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, the genuine faith that is in you. That's a statement of someone that believes in you, saying your faith is genuine, the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Louis, and your mother, Eunice, and I'm persuaded is in you also. Let me pause here. I don't know if Mayor is on board, but I remember Mayor asked last week that why is it that at this verse yes. was the mothers that were um, mentioned or the feminine gender and not the man. I mean, just reading the verse in context, it's pretty much very clear. Paul is talking about the genuine faith that is in Timothy. That faith did not come from the father's line or from the grandfather's line. We know from the book of Acts, uh, when Paul first met Timothy, it was, it was spelled out there clearly that his father, though um, he, he, was, he was born by a Jewish mother who was, of course, in the faith, but his father was a pagan. And so that's the reason why yeah, the name you will find will be the mother's name, because that's the person that is in the faith. The father was not in the faith. Uh, so it's referring to his genuine faith, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Louise, and your mother, Eunice, and I'm persuaded is in you also. Verse 6, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's the anchor scripture that batted our weekly prayer meeting. Power love and a sound mind now we're moving on to verses 8 to 12 which is actually where we are focusing on for the first part of our time together tonight therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our lord nor of me his prisoner but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of god who has saved us and called us the holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is a compound complex statement. I know there are so many things without a full stop, but don't worry. Break them down little by little. Verse 11 and 12 to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him mm. until that day. Beautiful scripture. The Lord bless his word in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're moving on to shameless suffering, shameless suffering. Um, we've gone through courageous enthusiasm, but now shameless suffering. And you could see from the few verses we read that being not ashamed was mentioned um, in a couple of places there in verse 8 and verse 12. And of course, later down in that chapter, we're going to read verse 16, where again, we're going to mention, Paul is going to mention one Onesiphorus, and I don't know if I would ever be pronouncing that correctly. You could also be tempted to call it once for us. Whatever way you call it, we're not Greeks. I believe that he will pardon us. Um, he reported that Onesiphorus was not ashamed of his chains, of, of Paul's chains, of him being a prisoner. And we're going to hear some few things about that young man or old man as he might have been back in those days. Um, so between verses 8 to 12, Paul is admonishing Timothy to not be ashamed. And in verse 80, he spelled it out of two things that it shouldn't be ashamed of. Don't be ashamed of the Lord's testimony and don't be ashamed of the Lord's prisoner. Who is the Lord's prisoner in this case? Paul himself. He's saying, don't be ashamed of the Lord's testimony <clears throat> and don't be ashamed of me. You could say, don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of the gospeler, in this case, Paul. But let's take it one after the other. Be not ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, verses 8 to 10. And these verses, they are offering us at least three reminders, the way um, following the outline that we are using, they are, they, are, they are offering us at least three reminders that can help us to stay unashamed of the testimony of our Lord, unashamed of the gospel. I think it's um, in Romans 1, 16 that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God 
Um, and again, that's the very first dimension that comes forth from this um, from this text when it says, don't be ashamed of the Lord's testimony. Why? It says, share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power, the power, the power of God. So first, God gives us power by the reason of the gospel. And that's why we can't afford to be ashamed of the Lord's testimony. <clears throat> we, can't ashamed, we can't afford to be ashamed of the gospel. Of course, none of us naturally enjoys suffering. So when we hear shameless suffering, there are two, both words are, they are not things we naturally like to be related with. We don't want to be related to shame and we don't want to, or even to shamelessness. When they say you are shameless, it's more of a, in many contexts, especially to an adult, it will sound more insultive than a compliment. And likewise, we don't want to be associated with suffering. But of course, we know that one of the secrets um, for the growth of children, if you will, is their shamelessness. Mm -hmm. um, this, this became very apparent to me when Joshua was first trying to walk and how that he would be trying and he would struggle and he would almost stand up and then he falls down again. And before you know it, he's up trying a second time, trying a third time without thinking of the fact that, oh, I just failed a while ago. I just failed 10 seconds ago. As far as they are concerned, they don't think about the fact that they failed. They just want to give it a go again. They just want to try again. Shamelessness is part of the recipes, if you will, um, for success. But not just shamelessness in the sense of being, you know, um, unabashed and, and careless. But in this case, a shameless suffering because you found something that is so worthy something that is so gainful that you can't afford to be ashamed of it. Pastor uses this line often in push when he's encouraging us to share um, the, the, the program on our status. He say, you can't afford to be shameful of what is gainful. And I think that captures what I'm trying to say very happily. So of course, like I said, none of us naturally enjoy suffering. It's part of our humanity to somewhat resist it to somewhat not desire it. Even Jesus, the incarnate Christ, um, God incarnate, God made flesh. Part of the expressions of his humanity, we found it ever so plainly um, in, in the Gethsemane experience when he went three different times to go to God in prayer to say, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass over me. Of course, we know he would go on to then hard, but not my will, um, but let your will be done. We saw Paul perhaps following the same templates. He also went to God. He said three different times concerning what we know in God's word as the thorn in his flesh, whatever that might be in practical terms. But he said three times he went to God and said, take this thorn away from me. And again, each and every time he gets the same response. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So we know from the full scope of, of scriptures, especially in the New Testament, that suffering is a part of the experience or the expectation of a faithful Christian life. You can't expect to truly um, be a child of God and not expect to suffer. It's one of the things Jesus said in his final words. It's part of the reason why he promised them the Holy Spirit. I will not leave you without a comforter. I will not leave you like orphans. I will come to you. Um, I said, I will send you a spirit that is right now with you, but will then be in you. In other words, it's exactly like me. I am with you now, but I'm going to send something or someone. It's not a thing. It's not a force. It's a person. I'm going to send someone that would be exactly all that I have been to you, except that it's you, you even get a better experience because now he can be in all of you at the same time and he can be with all of you at the same time. And that's the joy and the bliss of being filled with the spirit of God. However, the suffering we are talking about, and we need to make that clear, is not the kind of suffering that is based on wrongdoing. If you did something wrong and that brings you suffering, that's not the kind of suffering we're talking about here. If you beat your wife, God forbid, and you find yourself um, arrested, <laughs> that is your cup of tea. <laughs> it's not because you are suffering for Christ. If you cheated or embezzled money, and Nemesis caught up with you. Uh, again, that is you um, <laughs> receiving or dancing to the tune that you have played for yourself. That's not the kind of suffering we're talking about here. When we suffer for doing good, 
when we suffer in one way or the other for righteousness sake, and we're going to discuss and, and throw that open for us to actually give examples of what that could look like. Uh, we, are, we are sharing in Christ's suffering. Uh, Philippians 3.10 has comfort in our conversation tonight that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. And again, that was Paul. That was Paul praying out like that, expressing part of the deepest passions of his heart. I want to know God because the more I know him, the more I feel like I don't know him. And I know there is more of him to discover and to know. Um, and suffering, <clears throat> we are sharing in Christ's sufferings when we suffer for doing good. And we are suffering in a sense on behalf of the old church. There, there is a brotherhood of fellowship of some sort when it comes to this issue of suffering. And we, we are... We are brethren in that sense. We are, we are suffering mates in a manner of speaking. The intensity of our sufferings will differ, but the mere fact that we all identify alike with Christ means that we are going to fellowship not only in the grace, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, but also in the fact that we suffer for him. And for such suffering, the interesting thing is God gives us the power that we need to bear it. It will not leave you without, at the point when you need it, where you need it, it will not leave you helpless. It will not leave you like orphans. It will not leave you to face it all alone. It gives us the power to bear it. That's the first reminder that would make us know there is no reason for me to be ashamed of the gospel, even at my place of work, even um, wherever it is that we may be, in spite of what the culture around us may be saying. Um, the second reminder is that God has called us by his grace. God has called us by his grace. He says in verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and his grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Before the beginning began, <laughs> there was already a plan that you and I would be by divine election one of those that would be chosen to enjoy that which we could by no means possibly qualify for in and of our own efforts. And so the emphasis in that verse, verse nine, comes down to that word grace. It's on grace. He saved us by his grace. We didn't save ourselves. He called us not because of what we've done, not on the basis of our good works. He calls us solely and wholly on the basis of his grace. Therefore, as Christians, it is God's purposes that we are to fulfill. And if these purposes include suffering, as again, Jesus has said, Paul has said, we've seen, Peter has said in his epistle, um, then we can accept it by faith and know that God's will is the best. Part of the reason why we can do this, I mean, this is not, this is not being um, fanatical. This is not fatalism. It's confidence in the wise plan of our gracious father. Because we saw that Jesus, when he embodied this kind of suffering, we could say of him looking back in retrospect that at the princes of this world known, they would not have crucified the king of glory. In other words, every suffering we go through as believers is one that would eventually down the line bring us greater glory. That's a given. That's, a, that's an established truth or an established doctrine in God's word, such that at the end of the day, while you are going through what, what you are going through, what I am going through, the devil may be laughing at us. People around may, may, may mock you to your face or behind your back. But the fact is, down the line, at the end of the day, if they had known, even if you yourself had known the glory that lies ahead, you would submit totally to the process of going through that suffering uh, by the power that God supplies and by the grace of his calling by which you and I have been called. That's the second reminder. First, that there is power for it. Second, that we're called by his grace. And third, that Christ has defeated death, which we saw again in verse 10. It says, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus has abolished death. He has brought life. He has brought immortality to light through the gospel. 
this is one, one truth that I think many Christians just believe it theoretically. We don't really let it sink in to the deep recesses of our soul. Uh, because when there is an opportunity to pray um, against death, I think part of what comes into that prayer, I mean, if, if you find yourself in a prayer meeting and everybody have been praying and praying, and then there's a prayer point against that, you see that the intensity goes up. Understandably so, we don't want to lose our lives, we don't want to lose our loved ones, and yet that is a certainty for everyone to go through. But I also think that part of what feeds into that is the, is, is the imbalanced perception of the fact that this world is we need to lay hold on it. We need to stay as long as possible and enjoy all that there is to enjoy. There are many other things to do. There are still things I wish to accomplish that I haven't accomplished. And that's that's true factually. And that's okay. The desires were planted in your heart by God. He has planted eternity in our hearts, Bible says. But when we realize that Jesus Christ has defeated death, abolished death, stripped it of its power, that understanding in and of itself makes you a kind of Christian that the last thing anyone or any force can threaten you with is death. And that's not to say you want to be careless to go and say, yes, let's go and die. Like the man that they said, he went into the zoo in Ibadan. I don't know if the story is true or not, but many years ago and said, yes, I have received the anointing of Daniel. His name was also Daniel. And he went into the lion's den, snuck into the lion's den while people were not watching and wanted to reenact what happened in Daniel chapter six. Of course, they brought out his corpse, or at least the parts that they could still rescue because the lions <laughs> tore him to pieces. So we're not, we're not saying you want to be careless in that sense, but the, the, the given biblical fact is that death has been defeated and no believer in Christ dies in that sense again. They go to sleep knowing fully well that that was not their end. That is not their end. That can't possibly be their end. Jesus has given us a template. He went there, tasted it, took it of its power and came out of the grave to make a statement to say, this is, this is going to be the journey for everyone that believes in me. Yes, they may die. Yes, they may experience death the way we see and experience it on this side of eternity. But the day is coming when indeed, they will be quickened again. And that which used to be mortal will be swallowed up by that which is now immortal. That which used to be corruptible will be swallowed up by that which is incorruptible. And that's, that's the hope, that's the blessed hope. There is no other religion that assures you of that. That's the blessed hope that we have in Christ Jesus. So Paul himself was facing death while writing this letter. He knew that death is coming as he dictated this letter. But Jesus Christ has defeated that last enemy that you and I have. By his own death and resurrection, he has abolished death. To abolish is to make something of no effect. Is to make it inoperative. Is to take out the sting, the, the venom. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? And when we did First Corinthians as a series, I think that was one of my favorite parts um, in the study of that book. And what's more, it's not only that it destroyed death, but also that it revealed life, it revealed immortality, it revealed incorruptibility. And everyone that is called and justified, we know that they are going to be glorified. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 down to 29 down to 30. It's, it's, it's the blessedness of walking with Jesus. Of course, this is by no means a permission to live anyhow. This is an understanding that even that understanding in itself will prompt you to live as God wants you to. Titus chapter 2 verse 11, the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness so that we can rise up to begin to lay hold on all that we have as our inheritance in Christ. So the present body that we have is corruptible. It will die. It will decay. But the glorified body, which we don't have yet, those that have died in Christ, they don't have it yet. All of us are going to get it almost about the same time. He says those in, in, in Christ that died in Christ will rise. And others, and others will be caught up with him um, in the clouds. Thank you for that. Um, but the glorified body we shall receive when we, when we see Christ will not be subject to decay or to death. Of course, sad to say, 
Um, okay, now moving on to the second thing that we're not to be ashamed of. The first thing that we're not to be ashamed of is the gospel. And we've seen those three reminders that Paul gives Timothy and us secondarily um, on how we should remind ourselves that we need not to be ashamed of the gospel. But secondly, we also don't need to be ashamed of the Lord's prisoner. In this case, Paul, uh, but in our own case, it could be anyone. In fact, in the other part of what we're going to talk about in the third point, we are also still going to look at this from another uh, flip side, so to speak. But in Paul's context, it's sad to say that the people in Ephesus, they've deserted him at this time of need. Not only the people in Ephesus, in fact, because when we get to chapter four and towards the end of that chapter, you would actually feel Paul's isolatedness in a sense. It's almost like now he's left alone. And if there's any time that people should have rallied around him, I think it is at this point of his ministry. It would have made Timothy's ministry in Ephesus and in the surrounding cities much easier if he also had joined along with all those people that had forsaken Paul. Uh, and if he had gone along with the crowd, but Paul is admonishing him to remain true. And he gave him four reasons why Timothy should not be ashamed of his association uh, with Paul, even as a prisoner. The first reason is the fact that Paul called, Paul was called by God. Servants of God in our midst are called by God. No legitimate servant of God calls himself. Of course, we know that there are many servants of God or so-called servants of God in the world that were not called, but servants of God are authoritatively called by God. Otherwise, they are not servants of God. They are servants of themselves. It says in verse um, 11, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. He was a preacher. A preacher, the, the Greek word means a herald, or, or maybe from our African um, worldview, we would say something like a town crier, someone that goes with the official message of the kingdom or of the king and spread it around in the community. And that was Paul. He was called by God. Why should anyone be ashamed of someone that is proclaiming, as it were, the news of the king of kings? And not only was he a herald, he was an apostle. An apostle in the sense, the, the, when we talk of apostles today and apostles in the first century, there's a slight difference in the sense that every apostle that we see back in the New Testament era are people that have literally seen the Lord. This is one of the reasons why Paul's apostleship seemed to be disputed, and he keeps writing all these epistles, starting with that qualification. I'm an apostle ordained by God, or I'm an apostle called by God. Why? Because he saw the resurrected Lord on his way to Damascus. So that's one of the necessary qualifications to be an apostle in the first century. Um, everyone that is an apostle else uh, ends forth or after that era. They have seen the Lord in that we have received him and we have experienced him in our hearts and we have experienced his calling um, in different ways. So to relate with an apostle in the first century and reject him is also to reject the Lord. It's also to reject Christ because the person is representing Jesus Christ. And so to reject an apostle is to reject the Lord. And I believe the same is still valid today. Everyone that is ordained an apostle is ordained as a representative of Christ. And so to reject them in any way is to reject the Christ that has called them and ordained them into that office. The second reason why Paul is saying, don't be ashamed of me as a prisoner, is that he's a teacher of the Gentiles. In fact, that word Gentiles, that is what put him in prison in his first imprisonment in Rome. He has been imprisoned in Rome twice. When he was writing 2 Timothy, that was his second time. And there are two types of prisons. The first time he was imprisoned in Rome, it was a house arrest. He was living in his own house. Yes, changed to a Roman soldier, but he was in his house. And he had opportunity to minister to people. This second time that he's writing this letter, he's writing from a dungeon. So this is like a sure prison that is more hopeless and people that go there know that they only come out to be executed. Um, and what led him to prison in that first time was because he was preaching or defending his case before the Sanhedrin. And then he mentioned the fact that God called him and sent him to the Gentiles. The Bible says in Acts 22, from verse 22, that at the moment he mentioned that word Gentiles, everybody just shouted, why should, he, why should we let him leave? Let's just kill him. Let's just execute him. This, this, that, that. 
and they were going to pronounce judgments immediately. And before eventually some other things came into the place, it made them know he was a Roman citizen and things like that. And the issues was pro were prolonged a little more. But the point is, yet it is these same Gentiles that for which cause, for, for whom he has sacrificed and suffered, that they should be the ones that will be there for him at this point in time, yet none of them were to be found. At that point when he was writing this letter, he was left alone. The third reason is that he was confident in Christ. He's saying, don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of me as someone that is in prison because at the end of the day, I have confidence in Christ. One with God, the Bible says. Is it the Bible that says it or is a cliche? One with God is a majority. I believe it's a valid statement. I don't think the Bible says it. <laughs> but it's a, it's a reality that we know. We saw it play out, for instance, in the story of Gideon. And he wanted to go and fight with these very many people. And God said, no, you, you believe the victory was won because of your numbers. And until he brought it down to an impossible minority of just only 300 to go and face multitudes. And Bible makes us see that with those 300, he wrote a great victory. When you are with God, is enough. And Paul had confidence in Christ. He says, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. I'm not ashamed for I know who I have believed. And I know that he is faithful and he will keep me. He will keep my life that I've entrusted in his hand. He will keep it to the end. He will keep my salvation that I've entrusted in his hand. He will keep it to the end. He will keep that, whatever it is, whatever project you have committed into his hand. Psalm 37 verse 5, commit your ways unto the Lord, trust in him, and he shall bring it to pass. So we are saved not just because we believe uh, in baptism by immersion or that we believe in eating the Lord's Supper. Mm -mm. Yes, those doctrines are important and they have, they have their place, but we are saved because we believe in the person and that person is Jesus Christ. So the question to you and I is, do you know who you have believed? The same Paul that was saying in Philippians 3, and that I may know him. This is a testimony to the fact that it's not like he didn't know him. He's only saying, I want, to, I want more of you. I want to sink further into intimacy with you that I may know him. But now he's saying, I actually know him. I know his character. I know that he's trustworthy. I know that he loves me. I know that he's able to keep whatever I've kept in his hand until the very end. Quick question or discussion. I know I've gone on and on and I've not even given us an opportunity to share back. How do Christians suffer for Christ today? What would that look like? This whole suffer shamelessly for Christ. What can that look like in our context, especially in the Western world? What can that look like today? Any couple of questions? You can get yourself if you want to share and just go for it. This quick. Okay. do you want to share? No. All right. Okay. Any 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 contribution on that on that regard? How do Christians suffer for Christ today? Uh, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Um, I'd like to give an example. Um, right. from from Nigeria with my little experience. I we used to stay in um, Kwara State, which is a um Muslim, you know, state, so to speak. So, um, for example, if you are to apply for a job at the um, an organization day, mm. they usually consider teaching those who are Muslims mm, mm. before they consider picking Christians. Mm. So they they usually see Christians as um, um, like uh, they are going to like counter everything. They, they mm. put in place there and usually if you if you are on the top of a position in in Kuala, you have to be very, very prayerful because those Muslim they they I'm sorry to say that I'm sorry to say this, they they do everything. They they don't mind going diabolical mm. just to like fight against you. You have to be very 
very, very prayerful mm. to stay in that mm. position. If you do not want to lose your life or your position, so mm. things like that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Beautiful example. Thank you, Sister Diola. Sister Lioness, um, over to you. Um, I was just going to share about um, a personal experience that I had when I was in in, um, in my university in Nigeria. Um, I remember that I went to the Solabison Obanjo University and the set with which I came in were very many now. Um, and then because I came in through direct entry, there were automatic carryovers of some, you know, English courses or G, we call it GNS. Okay. So, but in year two, okay, so that is year two, you automatically carry some GNS from year one into year two. Um, and then, so it makes the courses, you know, more than what I should be doing. And so it took my courses down to 11 and I had to do those courses but by the time I started checking my result, I was like, ah, what is going on? And you know, this kind of university is the kind of university that they will not release your results until the first semester or the next of the of the coming <laughs> of the next year. So you can imagine I was in 300 level and I was getting the result of the first semester in 200 level. And some of them were coming out as I failed those courses. And I was like, God, what is going on? Can you be quiet? I went and told my guardian. My guardian took me to the math science department and said, because I was doing computer science and it was, was like, ah, that this is my, what is going on? <laughs> I was shocked at what the secretary of the department said to me. He said, she said to me, so when you finish your exams, did you go home or did you stay around? I was like, well, when I finished my exams, I went home. So the woman was like, so you finished your exams and you went home. You did not stay to monitor your result, to monitor. I was like, me, I don't know that I have to stay back and monitor result and monitor stuffs. All right, as if that was not enough. I came out of that. So she told me off. I came out of that office, like tears were rolling down. As at that time, I had seven carryovers out of 11 courses. I was to fill my course form in 300 level year and um, um, first semester and the course space could not contain my courses once again i started crying i was like god i all i, I knew was i was going to be rusticating but i was going to be weeded i i was just like i was going to be taken out of this in fact by the time i because at that time math science department i knew that you know our friends they will go and see the lecturers behind it was yesterday that I was hearing from one of my friends that eventually this particular lecturer that we're talking about and a couple of other were sacked mm. from that department, like a maybe a few years later that I'd left. But you know, it was in the middle of all of that that I left Nigeria. Mm. That my visit. But I I I but what I'm saying, what, what I say to that point is that you know, because I could not as a Christian sister. I didn't want to go and see these lecturers behind. I didn't want to sleep with any one of them. That was my issue. Uh, uh, all right. So I had to go through all of that because I did not want to do that. Thank you very much. Well, both um, examples that our sisters gave. Um, I put a few more ex possible examples on this, but this is not exhaustive. You will lose some friends because of your faith. That's a given. You'll be bypassed. You may be bypassed for promotion because of your faith. You could lose customers because some people will say, ah, that one, who knows how much prayer and fasting she has done on, on the cake that I'm going to eat from. <laughs> Let me take it to someone else. You may be snubbed by people and so on and so forth. And of course, you may feel real persecution. All these ones we are saying is... is Suffering for Christ, of course, but there are people living in the north, for instance, now in Nigeria that are being faced like every day is, is, is they just live by God's grace, basically, uh, because they've seen many of their relatives, their family members, their church members being killed um, for no just cause or no justifiable cause in that sense, just because they are Christians. So we could face any of these and a wide range of many other things, but if we suffer, for Christ, 
And if we stand by God's servants who are suffering for righteousness, sake, the fact is that the reward is there. And so give that reward. Sister, no, very quickly. Sorry, I just have a question. In the case of being bypassed for a promotion, yeah. you know, you said that one of the, the reason why we suffer for Christ is because we do it according to the power of God that is in us. Mm. Isn't it, <clears throat> shouldn't it be advised that we should, because we have the power of God, we should push back on this injustice. Because if we're being bypassed for a promotion, that means it's our due. But because we are Christians, then can we not take a stand against that? in our places of work? Good question. Um, I mean, that's a very beautiful question I would love us to spend some time on, but again, I'm looking at the time. If, if anybody wants to offer some thoughts on that, please feel free to do so. Um, Pastor, do you want to share on that? Uh, can you, uh, yes, uh, one minute, can you quickly rephrase the question, please, if you don't mind? So you know how, when Pastor was saying it in the, um, when he was doing the slides here, yeah, he said mm -hmm. one of the reasons that we can afford to that is that we can carry the suffering is because it's according to the power of God in us. That's the end of chapter and um, verse eight. So yeah. in, in the example of being bypassed for a promotion at, at, at a place of work because of the fact that we are Christians. So my question is, because we have that power in us, can we not push back against that injustice to say that mm. we would not accept this because it's not our due. If we're entitled to the promotion, then it should be given to us regardless of our religion. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think what I would thank you very much, ma. What I will say about that is this. It, it depends on the circumstance. But I'll give you a practical example. Now, most time, for example, in my place of work, most time, the people that get a promotion, yeah, the people, and naturally it's almost everywhere, they're the people that have to go above and beyond. And for you to go above and beyond, it must be at the detriment of something. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, that's why you always see they say a career man, a career woman. It's sometimes it's at the detriment of families, children, and all stuff. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, most times, at the detriment. So, for example, now, when we have overseas uh, training or weekend in, say, in some European countries, America, they will not even bother putting my name because they say, they know I will say no. Because I have to be in the church. If they have training somewhere, else, they will not say, uh, because I will, if it is every day or stay till any time, I will do, I'll give extra in this. Uh, but because if it clashes with things of God that I have to, then it's always going to be a no. But the people that get that promotion naturally are the people that have, they actually see doing those extra things. So the diff is the setting, and that's the way the society sets this thing parallel in this part of the world. Yeah. So for example, you will see that it's on Sunday that they pay you times two times three. So why would they pay you normal on, uh, on weekdays? Then Sunday, they now pay you double. So if you see a, a Christian that's not, uh, that's still, that not really, really stood as strong in, they will, they will rather go there and pay tight. Mm. Because one, one of that Sunday can pay for two or three. That's what they do in NHS now for those that work in NHS. So we can do that, those support and all of that. So what I'm trying to say is that the environment I've actually put. So I think I like what the pastor says. It's a, a, it's a kind of, a, that's a particular word we call it in management. So, but the system has actually put it in the place that you're already at a disadvantage as a Christian because of some of the policies that are there. Mm. So that's the that's the thing. So to for, but if you are in a situation where all those things are not there, but you're actually pushing, but of course the power is in you. You can put because you have this strength, just like Daniel, to be the best, the intelligence, the the way I was going to share some uh, things on my last two, three days preaching. I think Pastor added already. So it was the uh, the letter written by a CEO of our organization directly to me and was saying when they interview all of the students, the singular thing that made the difference in there. So I was going to share because I was going to talk about the, um, you know, favor of God and favor of men. And I have to say favor of men, why you have to actually put in your shift why you have to live above mediocrity. Mm. So when it involves your personal within that limited time, yes, 
but the system has been arranged in a way that it's it compensates those that actually sacrifice things of God. And that's the system of this word. They will live above the sins of this word. That's the that's what I would say to that. Thank you very much, sir. Um, Sister Anu, I believe that answers the question. Yes, thank you, Pastor. Thank you, ma'am. Um, <clears throat> I would quickly move through spiritual loyalty, especially because the points are also pretty much similar. Um, verse 13 to 18 says, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Again, pardon me if I didn't pronounce it correctly. The Lord grants mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, the breath of fresh air, and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grants to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many, how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Um, again, two things that jump out from here is, or one thing is loyalty, but loyalty in two dimensions, loyalty to the word of God and loyalty to the servant of God. Loyalty to the word of God, we see that in verses 13 to 14. Let me quickly read that again. Hold fast the pattern of sound words, sound doctrine, which you have heard from me in faith and love, in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And so um, God had given that deposit of spiritual truth to Paul. We know he wrote two thoughts of the New Testament. And he has passed it on to Timothy. Now it's Timothy's solemn responsibility to hold fast to that, to guard it with his life the precious deposit of Christian doctrine that has been passed to him so that he too can then do what pass it along to others. It's the same cycle. The reason why we can be here discussing God's word today in this exegetical manner is because between the first century AD till today, there has been people in every generation that are endeavored to pass it along, to pass it along, to pass it along. At some point when when it was looking bleak and all that, God brought in a reformation that sparked a new revival that paid attention to God's word and brought it to the forefront yet again. Once upon a time in, in church history, there were no pulpits. Instead of pulpits, we had altars because services were, were designed such that everything points towards the communion and the sacrament and burning incense and all that. But today we have come back to the point of the word of God, the divine inspiration of scripture. And that is where life is. That's where we get what we need to move on and upwards. John 6, 63, the words that I speak to you, Jesus said, they are spirit and they are life. So throughout the history of the church, the word of God has been attacked in many fronts. In fact, by people within the church, yet the word of God is still standing because there have been dedicated men and women in every generation, people like Paul and Timothy, who are guarding this deposit of Christian doctrine and handing it on to a new generation of Christians. Let's join in on that. Let's pass it on as it were, that which we are receiving, whatever platform and context and sphere of influence the Lord gives you, use it. In what ways can we be loyal to God's word? I would leave that um, question for now. Maybe we can start with it next week. But the second part to that then is loyalty to God's servants. We don't know who Phygelus and Amogenes are. We don't know. It's likely that they were leaders in the church in Ephesus who opposed Paul and would not come to his defense in Rome. That's a possibility. But again, we don't know. What we know is that they were ashamed of him. We know that they, 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 and by being ashamed of him, they were ashamed of Christ. Just as I explained before, as an apostle, to be ashamed of an apostle is to be ashamed of the person the apostle represents, the one who sent that apostle um, in that regards. Uh, so it was certainly a dark moment for Paul in terms of how many people had forsaken him just before um, this in chapter four, um, rather at the end of this letter, rather. He said about Demas, he said Demas had forsaken him. He said in verse 16, no one stood in my defense. His other associates, they've been sent to distant places of ministry. So it's majorly Timothy now that it's up to him to take on the work when Paul leaves the scene. But in the midst of that, see how the chapter ends. This man by the name of Onesiphorus, who we don't even know much about, but he dared to leave Ephesus 
make the dangerous trip to Rome in the days when there are no flights, in the days when there are no cars. And not only coming to Rome, remember I said that the, pro, the prison that Paul is in now is like a black site, is a, is, a, is a dungeon. It's not the kind of prison that anybody can just get access to. But Paul said, he diligently sought me out until he found me. We found out, of course, from Greek lexicons that his name means profit bearing. And indeed, he brought profit, as it were, comfort, refreshing, fresh air to Apostle Paul. And every pastor is thankful for members like that, faithful members like that, who assist them in the work of the Lord. Um, such people would open their homes, they would open their hearts, they would open their wallets, they will share the burdens and the needs of their pastors, they will pray to sustain their pastors. One of our church um, rules of belief is that we should make the pastor our intimate friend. The Yoruba says, literally the person that if you don't see him, you should not sleep. In other words, you must talk to your pastor every day. I'm not saying you should call us every day. <laughs> that would be so many calls to pick. Um, but make your pastor your intimate friend because you desire his, his counsel, his, his support and prayers and all that. And in return, you also support him and pray. For him. That's, that's part of the pillars of the church. Um, often these kind of believers, they will minister behind the scenes. They are not doing this for sure. And yet the Lord will reward them openly on that day as Paul prayed for honesty for us. Um, I've mentioned this point, so I'll just move on because I'm looking at the time. There is a slight um, theological issue here also at play. If you read that passage in verses 15 to 18, you could get the vibe that Onesiphorus is dead. Let me go back to that passage. And let me just quickly address that verse 15 to 18, especially when he said in verse 16, the Lord grants mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my shame. Then in verse 8, it says, the Lord grants to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. And the question this then brings is that, does that mean that we can pray for the dead? Um, uh, there have been lots of speculations around that um, in, in, in biblical commentaries and discourse around this passage. But the point is that if Oniferus is dead or was dead, then it means that Paul prayed for the dead in verse 18. And if you check the scriptures elsewhere, you don't find such an authorization to pray for the person that is dead. It's appointed unto man to die once, after which there is judgment. But if we place it in context, these are the few things that we can definitely bring out. The fact that one, we have no proof that Onesiphorus was dead when Paul wrote this letter. Um, the fact that Paul asked that God should bless his household, that's part of the arguments these people make. That he said God should bless the household of Onesiphorus, not Onesiphorus himself, as though to say, now we know that he's dead, so he, God should bless his household. But the fact that he mentioned the household and not the man, it simply means that Onesiphorus was not with his family. Um, if someone is writing about my house and I'm not there, you can say, so pray for the family of Pastor Allah, um, that the Lord will bless them or whatever it is. And not necessarily for Pastor Allah because Pastor Allah is not there. And understandably, Onesiphorus had just visited him and probably is still on the journey um, back or he has gone from Rome to elsewhere, um, but yet to return to Ephesus back to his family. In any case, there was no need to greet Onesiphorus because Paul himself had just spent time with him. So he only wrote that his household should be acknowledged. That's one way to resolve the different issues. That's not to say things like saying, uh, may their soul rest in peace. That's okay. Uh, we are expressing our desire and our wish, but we know biblically that there is no amount of our desire and our wish that will change someone's eternal destiny. It is appointed unto man to die once and after which is judgment. In any case, Onesiphorus was not ashamed of Paul's chain. That's the lesson for us. Let's follow his example of loyalty. Were it not for Paul's letter, we would not even have known that there is such a person who served Paul and the church in such a very beautiful way. But the Lord knew, and we are certain that the Lord will reward him on that day. And so in conclusion, <laughs> The three lessons or the three things that we brought on for success in life and ministry, enthusiasm, which comes from having people that are rooting for you, people that love you, that pray for you, that believe in you. Then shameless suffering, suffering for the Lord, for doing the right thing. And when you get all those seeming disadvantages, you also relish 
the priceless advantage that you have in the benefit of knowing the one with whom we all have to do, even the most high. And lastly, spiritual loyalty, loyalty to God's word, loyalty to God's servant. And this is not to encourage loyalty to people that are not servants of God, if, if you get what I mean. We thank God for God's church. We thank God for Christ's church. He will see to it that his church is growing. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. And by God's grace and the glorious vision, the Lord has blessed us with servants of God that are indeed called by God. So spiritual loyalty to the word of God that they are teaching us and also to the servants of God that God is using and missed us. My prayer is that God will release his great grace upon us to develop these virtues in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.